Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod. We've got another cracker lined up for you, but before I dive into that, folks, a reminder, this is specifically for the people who subscribe or are um, on Patreon as one of the um, patrons, I guess, the clues rather in the name. Um, As you will have heard from the exclusive announcement episode, small episode thingy that went out, thingy being a technical term as ever, um you will need to double check that announcement and the perks and make sure you're not being overcharged because the perk system is changing for those of you who don't subscribe to the patreon system or the um spotify exclusive episodes you don't need to do anything you're just going to be able to enjoy the fact that more stuff will go out for free it's all because i've got a leave a only career fellowship humble brag right there um but I'll be at Portsmouth University, and so basically, I don't need to use money as a as podcast that means to generate money. Um, so good times ahead for the Napoleonic Wars pod. Enough about that. Let's um, let's dive into what promises to be a really cracking episode. I talk a lot about the British Army. I'm I'm aware of that. We're going to bash that well and truly on the head in this one, and talk solely about the French. Um, and I'm delighted to have back a cracking historian, um, a regular contributor to this show at this point. Graham Callister is in the house. If you're not familiar already, Graham is Senior Lecturer in History and, York- and War Studies at York St. John University. He's the author of War, Public Opinion and Policy in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 1785 to 1815. You can get that from Palgrave Macmillan. And he's co-author of the I was going to say award-winning. I can't actually recall if it's award-winning. It's certainly best-selling Battle Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Hellmand, which was from Pen and Sword last year. Graham, welcome back to the show. Um, Talk about commitment to the cause. You're at the tail end of nursing yourself through COVID. So thank you for joining us when 
frankly, I'm sure you've got better things to do in terms of rest and recuperation and all the rest of it. How are you doing, if that's not a dumb question? Uh, well, I'm, I'm alive. That's the, the main thing. Um, thanks for having me on, Zach. Uh, nice uh, to be back. And I'll apologise to everyone in advance if my voice goes halfway through, uh, as you say, on the tail end of a bit of a bout of COVID. Um, but aside from that, all good, all good. Uh, and a last battle was only a, it, it got to a bestseller on Amazon for a good 12 hours uh, and on the publisher's website. Uh, very proud of that. But the uh, the awards are still in the post. Um, I'm, I'm expecting the Nobel Prize any day, but uh, not quite here yet. Well, we'll we'll get on the horn to, um, I don't know, who, who should be shipping prizes? Maybe whoever carried on from Hermes. I forget what they're called now. But, um, you know, if they are coming via Hermes, then then you might have to wait another sort of 20 years or so. Um, OK, to business. Uh, we're talking Waterloo men, but we're talking Napoleon's Waterloo men. And there's this is one of those topics where I'm often quite wary when people go, oh, there's some new stuff to know about Waterloo. Because you go, yeah, but this is the battle that we've talked about endlessly. Um, and the trouble, of course, isn't, hey, there's some new stuff. It's that people go, oh, look, I've got this new perspective. And you just kind of go, yeah, that's great. But we've heard that about four times before in several different publications. And there's nothing new here. And a lot of the books that come out are just bandwagoning. He says as if he doesn't bandwagon shamelessly on this podcast. But they are bandwagoning in terms of Waterloo sells well. Um, and so d research on Waterloo does sort of sometimes make me suck my teeth and go, mm, is it is it really new though? This is not the case when it comes to this. This is exciting. It's groundbreaking. We're going to talk about the, the methods and the techniques behind this, but I think this might be one of the biggest social studies ever attempted for the French army during this period. Um, I'm going to emphasize the one of because I'm aware that there are a couple of kind of social studies of armed forces during this period in the pipeline. But it's it's a it's a study after my own heart. I'm going to, you know, kind of be openly biased about that. I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say, but also reading the book when it comes out, because, yes, people, there will be a book. But before all of that, and before looking at what your work has dismantled when it comes to the perceptions about Napoleon's men in his Waterloo army, I think it's important to take a little look at the tropes that tend to dominate the discussion. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that gets peddled. You know, this is, inverted commas, the worst army that Napoleon ever commanded. End inverted commas, according to some folks. Um, we'll debate that in due course. This was a green army that had never fired a shot in anger and all of the men were sort of untrained boys those are the two that immediately spring to mind but i mean you're the guy who's done the research what's your sense of the tropes that we could do with bashing on the head when it comes to discussing this army um well i think there's uh, there's quite a lot that that automatically spring to mind those that you've you've alluded to um, where people write this army off as, you know, it's 1814, but even worse. Uh, it's it's young boys, it's uh, raw conscripts all thrown together. Um, and and there are some people who would push out that line, but others go the other way and say, actually, 1815 is the best army Napoleon's fielded since 1805. It's had the return of prisoners of war. 
Uh, it's all men who fought in in the previous campaigns. Uh, one historian said there was not a single man in the army who hadn't fought at least one campaign before. Um, that's bold. That's, that's a bold statement. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he's on the right lines, but uh, there are, uh, and I've got the names of several hundred who hadn't fought before, um, just in First Corps. And there always will be. Uh, any force is going to have a few recruits. Um, but there are these kind of two kind of diametrically opposed interpretations. One, that this is a useless army thrown together of raw conscripts. The other, this is somehow a veteran force, the best army that Napoleon's fielded. Um, I think British historians quite like the second one, the best army, for obvious reasons. Um, I cannot think why. Luke Reynolds no. has just entered the chat, people, in terms yeah. of that whole who owned Waterloo discussion and Wellington bigging up his own reputation. Yeah, uh, I, I can't think why. Uh, obviously, natural generosity towards the French, clearly. Um, well, we have such a strong history of it, right? Yeah, obviously. Um, and these are two of the, the main things. Um, people also talk about the units themselves. They are veteran units. They can trace them back through the Napoleonic Wars, um, list the battles they've been at. A lot of them have fought the British before in the peninsula. Rarely successfully, it needs to be said, but um, a lot of them have experience. Um, there's a, a big trope here of that, that Napoleon starts himself in his speech right on the eve of the Waterloo campaign of there being a huge number of men returned from British prisons, um, from the prison hawks who've been maltreated by the British and who are out for vengeance. Um, there's even some officers who say, you know, half of our unit were, uh, were former prisoners of Britain, wanted revenge. Um, I've gone through the stats and looked at those. I can talk about that later. Um, there's an idea that this is an army that's all French as well. Um, in 1814, all foreigners in the French army are discharged. And that includes people who were born French in departments that were no longer now part of France. Uh, so along the Rhineland in Belgium, especially uh, some in Italy and Switzerland, which had been part of the French empire, um, had now been removed from France. They were all discharged, theoretically. So this is an army that should be homogeneously French. Um, again, that's something that we can look at uh, in the, the records. Um, and finally, there is a, another myth that both Napoleon and Wellington, interestingly, talk about, which is that all of the men in the ranks are loyal, diehard Bonapartists. Um, Wellington himself said, uh, you know, that there won't be any deserters from the French army. I think he said something like, we may pick up a marshal or two, uh, but nothing worth a damn. Uh, Napoleon said, we'll lose some officers to desertion, but not a man will leave my cause. Um, and again, we can, we can look at that uh, through the records to see whether French soldiers are quite as Bonapartist as, as both claimed. Um, Wellington incidentally said that, I think, before the battle had even happened, uh, maybe trying to get his excuses in early um, you know, for, for if things didn't go his way. I think he was talking to Thomas Creevy, wasn't he? I think that's um, that's one of the things that comes out of Creevy. Uh, there's a few of these great little lines. Um, the, the, that article one where he's pointing to an infantryman, probably the most famous, but this one, um, you know, it kind of, the indication that the French senior officers might be disloyal, but the rank and file are all solidly behind Napoleon. Uh, you know, it helps to paint this picture of the French army as something really formidable. Um, and it does really seem that Wellington is, is making his excuses in the weeks before the battle, just in case things don't go his way. He can say, oh, I told you they were good. He really does. Um, it's, it's an odd one to suggest that this is a NAF raw army to me, because... Look at how well they fight. 
um, whatever your views may be on the way in which the Waterloo campaign unfolds, you can't deny that these troops fight with a tenacity that is fitting of any army at any point during the period. So to suggest that they're all sort of green boys then leaves a, a bit of a, a flaw in your logic in terms of, well, why does it fight so effectively? Because it does fight very effectively. Yeah, um, and it, it, it's not just the personal courage, because we, we see this in the, the Hanoverian uh, militia, the Landwehr. Uh, we see it in the, the Belgians and the, the Dutch troops. Um, the national militia there was only embodied in April. Um, and two months later, they're fighting like heroes at Waterloo. And, and as much as British commentators like to talk about foreign troops running away, they stood as well as any. Um, and raw courage was there. Where they fell apart was normally an organization and effectiveness of firepower, effectiveness of fighting. But that's where the French army shows not just personal courage, which you know you don't need to have been in the army more than a, a minute to, to show courage, um, but to fight effectively. And as you say, they do fight effectively. Um, that takes more organization. Um, and, and that there is an indication there, certainly in, in their fighting record, that these are not know all raw conscripts that don't know what they're doing i mean 1814 shows us as well raw troops fight enormously bravely just fairly forlornly and and these guys are in some cases thrown into absolute bloodbaths ligny whether mm. you're talking about the fighting around saint-amand or whether you're talking about the fighting in ligny um town slash village as it was back then itself um plots are okay so you've got a lot of kind of guards and you've got lebeau's corps being fed into that front but still um th these are a grueling um kind of grinding matches as much as anything else so yeah um interesting that we've got this sort of slight disconnect i guess between some of the perceptions that get pushed out there and, and the combat performance um let's get technical for a moment no listeners don't go and start switching off and going oh this is going to turn into an incredibly nerdy historical methodology conversation it is going to turn into an incredibly nerdy historical methodology conversation but there's a reason for that because this is really interesting um so so far you've looked at Derlon's core right so i i'm trying to think off the top of my head by the time they're at um waterloo they've got something like eleven thousand five hundred men i want to say yeah. Uh, Derlon's Corps is, is the most complete. Derlon's First Corps is the one that spends the 16th marching between battlefields. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a, a total mix-up. We can get into that later if you if you want. Um, oh, yes. They, 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 we'll they barely that. fire a shot on the, the 16th. So when they arrive at Waterloo, they've still got four complete divisions of infantry, uh, a complete cavalry division, and it's about 20,000 men all told. Um, so they make up the bulk of Napoleon's kind of frontline units, I suppose, at Waterloo. Just before we talk about the, the work that you've done and how you've got there with these guys, um, a little question that's niggling at the back of my mind. Derlon, as as you say, he's he's the one who kind of marches between the two battles and effectively, in some respects, screws up the Waterloo campaign for the French because if he's committed at either, it's game over for the Allies. Um, but from what I remember, he leaves a small force in this sort of Wagnerly, uh, Saint-Amand, the kind of extreme French left of Ligny position. So what happens to those troops? Do they get kind of recalled to their respective divisions post-Ligny? 
Yeah, so that, that's Durrett's 4th Division and Jacquinot's Cavalry Division get left at Ligny because ba basically Durrett, uh, although he's 4th Division, he is leading the Corps on their march north uh, on the 16th. And when the order comes from Nate to, to return to Quatrebra, uh, he has a bit of a fallout with Delon says, no, we, we need to engage here. Uh, and they come up with a fudge solution where Delon will leave one division under uh, Durrett uh, and the cavalry under Jacquinot to engage the Prussians on the, the far Prussian right, the, the extremity of the Prussian, uh, the, the French left, and the rest of the, the units march back to Catrebra. Durrett gets mildly engaged at Ligny, um, basically an exchange of artillery and a minor attack on some troops that don't really stand to, uh, to defend. Um, and then that night he gets a recall order. Uh, and so he marches a few miles back to, and I forget the village, it's between the two battlefields. Um, he waits there on the afternoon of the, the 17th and then eventually marches north after the rest of First Corps. And he arrives on the Waterloo battlefield at about 12 o'clock, or he arrives um, at about half eight, but on the other side of the battlefield, his men are, are exhausted and need some food. Um, and then he's sent all the way over to the far right of the French at, at Waterloo. So he only actually takes position at about midday. Um, so his poor division spends most of the time marching up and down fruitlessly as well. Yeah, and then they get sort of basically sucked into Plants Noir, don't they? Which, in credit to them, they take Plants Noir. This is the story that often gets forgotten about for me. And I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about it because... It, it matters. Um, yeah, I mean, Durrett's fourth division is around uh, Papalo, Frichemont, um, La Haye. Sorry, so I said they're, Plans Noir, didn't I? Yeah, they're, they're involved yeah. Um, in the, you know, the, these are the settlements on the, the extreme uh, eastern part of the battlefield. Um, so the Allied far left, the, the French far right. Um, and they, they, in my view, they ignore them for the first few hours because these places can't project power. They can't stop an attack. They, they can't do anything. They're fairly useless. Um, but then when it appears the Prussians are arriving from there, they, they make a more concerted effort to take them because um, that could be a useful bulwark against a Prussian advance. Um, but they're quite heavily involved there. They are involved in the first major attack as well. Um, but because it's an echelon attack, as we'll probably discuss later, um, they're not the most heavily engaged. Um, but yeah, the, the chaps who almost engaged at Ligny uh, also do play their role at Waterloo. Um, I mean, the, the main thing, I suppose, that Delong did at Ligny um, was actually to appear on the, the far edge of Napoleon's flank uh, and cause a panic in the imperial staff who had no idea who these people were, um, which maybe lends credence to the idea that Le Bedouin was acting on his own initiative when he ordered them over to, to Ligny. Um, but, you know, Napoleon halts his attack for it. Was it about an hour? You probably know Ligny better than I do. Um, but, you know, he halts this attack for an hour because uh, he sees this corps come into view, no idea if they're Prussians, British, uh, Belgians. I know he he simply can't tell. So uh, Derlon, um, I don't think it's his fault, by the way, uh, but you know his corps does cause real problems for Napoleon uh, on the 16th. Yeah, you're dead right. He's about to send in the Imperial Guard. And then as this force kind of, well, this dust cloud more than anything else begins to appear in the distance, um, he he has to halt it because nobody knows whether they're friend or foe. And part of the issue is that the the troops are arriving where nobody's expecting them. So they, they are anticipating the arrival of Dernon's reinforcements, but they're expecting them uh, fundamentally down the, the road from Catrebra through places like Thiel 
and then all the way it ultimately goes all the way through to i believe lean you um and that's not where they materialize they materialize sort of in the the french right rear because nay hasn't secured the catcher bra crossroads and then sent um Dolan's court over and so instead what you have is these troops appearing in what is fundamentally where wellington would have appeared had wellington won at catcher bra and then sent reinforcements across so as you say the the imperial staff are they're scrambling trying to work out who the hell these guys are and it buys the prussians time actually to regroup and um and consolidate a little bit doesn't ultimately change in a massive way the outcome of Ligny. it is still obviously a defeat for the prussians but the suggestion is that had napoleon been able to send in the imperial guard that hour earlier then actually he could have secured a far more comprehensive defeat over the prussians would of course change the nature of the campaign i don't know why i'm telling you all of this because obviously you know it um but there's some context for our listeners right nerdy history conversation i'm looking forward to this um so you've looked at derwin's core and you've tracked every single man more or less from what i understand um first question i'm going to keep very simple how uh, okay, so the, the French army is quite good at record keeping. It's um, a trend across Napoleonic France, actually. Records are, are very well kept. Uh, and what they do when they enroll people in the army is put them in a regimental register. They have a, a list of every man who is in that regiment. Um, and in 1814, when the Bourbons come in, they basically reform the army. Uh, they renumber regiments, they rename them, they amalgamate them. And so they take the decision to re-enroll every single man in the regiments. And so starting from the summer of 1814, we have a list of every single soldier by name with a full record uh, of, of who is in the French army in each regiment. Uh, so for every single man, there is an entry into the regiment that gives uh, regimental record that gives biographical details. So name, date of birth, place of birth, parents, their height, a physical description, any distinguishing marks. Um, we have a list of how and when the man joined the army. So are they a conscript, a substitute, a volunteer? Uh, when did they join? What was their previous profession? Uh, where did they sign up? Um, we have the battalion and company that they're in within that regiment. So we can place them exactly either in a frontline battalion, a depot, a reserve. We have their ranks uh, and, and any previous ranks they've held. So a history of their promotions. Um, other marks of merit or, or sometimes demerit as well. So uh, the Legion d'honneur, if they have that, that would be recorded. Um, if they've been jailed, that's sometimes recorded as well. Um, and then we have um, what I can really describe as a narrative of their service history, which in some cases literally just says, you know, served in every campaign from 1806 to 14. In other cases, it is extremely detailed of where they served, what they did, what they did in each battle, some anecdotes about what they may have done as a mark of heroism, why they were promoted. Um, so basically what we have is a potted biography of every single man in the French army. They're obviously very brief, the six to a page uh, on a kind of A4 size page. So you know, the, these aren't massive biographies and some men's are, are pretty limited uh, in the information they give, but nonetheless, it's a vast resource. Um, and it suddenly occurred to me, you know what, I could draw a picture of an entire army here. Um, and then I realized I, I probably need to kind of eat and things as well. So I, I limited myself to one core. Um, but we have these biographies 
of what the French soldiers look like physically, metaphorically, um, you know, what kind of people they are. Um, and, and this is also why, you know, you said right at the start, Waterloo is, is done to death. The reason that I, I looked at Waterloo for this is because they have this re-enrollment in 1814, which gives us for this year an absolute snapshot of the French army, of what it looks like. Um, the, the records, of course, also say how someone leaves the army. So we also know if they left before Waterloo, uh, either desertion, death, discharge. Most of them are, are discharged. Um, previous wounds, things like that. So uh, it, it's it's really, really rich. I, I can wax lyrical and, and probably will do all day about these records. Um, but I mean, just to give a, a sense of a couple of things I found, uh, two men who fought at Trafalgar, who also fought at Waterloo, they come out of these records. Um, they actually only fought, fought two battles, both of them in the Napoleonic Wars, which is probably fortunate for France, given their track record. Um, but, uh, you know, Trafalgar men at Waterloo, pretty exciting. Uh, men in first corps from the Caribbean, from Egypt, uh, one from modern-day Uzbekistan, one from India, um, men who survived captivity in Russia, uh, some who survived Cabrera Island after Balin, um, men with multiple wounds, tales of heroism, the odd person killed in a duel, um, records of crime and punishment to interest you, Zach. Um, oh, so we, we have, <laughs> we have a, a vast resource here um and we can build up these these individual pictures but also a picture of of regiments and eventually of divisions of the corps as a whole so many questions so many questions um i'm going to stay with the nerd zone for a minute because what you've had to do is process a vast amount of information um i thought i was doing well when I tackled 9,200, and I forget quite how many it is, 27, I think, court-martials. Um, you had 11,500 men to wade through here, if not more. Um, but that's a daunting task, because you know how many you're going to have to deal with right from the outset. I mean, I kind of stumbled into my figures. Uh, the, the process... so where to go with this because there's a lot to to kind of unpick for our, our listeners as well for folks who aren't familiar there's there's something called qualitative history and something called quantitative history and qualitative history is to really dumb this down is kind of your classic memoirs and other typical sources whereas quantitative history is goes in the word kind of about numbers so putting together large data sets and piling all of that information into spreadsheets and and we're not just talking necessarily Excel spreadsheets. We'll get into quite what you use in a, in a minute, but um, lots of different, there are ways that you can kind of connect all of these different tables into really complex, um, fascinating databases. And then once you've done that, you then kind of can percolate the information and, and work out, um, work out the, the, the outcomes of all of this. Um, personally, I've never believed that you can do, you, no, that's not quite true. You can do qualitative history without doing quantitative, provided you're using a significant body of sources and not just one or two. That's an obvious kind of caveat. I've never believed that you can do really compelling quantitative history without then also alongside that doing a decent qualitative study. It doesn't need to be a comprehensive qualitative study, 
but it does nonetheless need to be good. What's your assessment on that? Have I basically just sort of deeply insulted you? No, no, I'm absolutely on board with that. Um, okay, that's relief. So y- you can do quantitative studies where, where you can crunch the numbers, you can get stats, but the only way you can interpret those numbers and stats is through qualitative data as well. Um, so, you know, I could tell you the average age of, of a man in Napoleon's army, but but what, what would that mean if we didn't have any context? Uh, would it mean that they'd just been recruited that year? Would it mean that they've been in the army 10 years? Um, you know, if I gave you the number 24, people might think, oh, that's quite old. But, uh, you know, if conscription only happened at the age of 23, that's not as impressive as if it happens at, at 20 as it does. So we, we need that qualitative data as well and information. Um, what I've tried to do with this project is, is crunch the numbers and then interpret them alongside a, as many memoirs as I can get, really. Um, Waterloo is, well, it, in some ways it's great. There's there's more memoirs for this battle than any other. Um, on the other hand, a lot of them are written at a time when suddenly people have realized, oh, these sell. They sell quite well. And what people want to read is a bit of heroism, a bit of daring do. The French almost win, snatch victory at the end. Um, and so that's what they write. Uh, and some of them are more honest than others. Some, um, the person may as well have not been there. They are just copies of Napoleon's memoirs, uh, of Napoleon's writings, of a few others cobbled together. Um, even someone like uh, Sergeant Major Cotton, who's you know, a British soldier who lives on the battlefield, um, becomes a, a renowned expert on it. Um, he admits in, in, I think it's about the third or fourth edition of his memoir, that he, he didn't really see that much. So he's l- used Seaborn's um, published work to fill in the gaps. And suddenly his memoir changes. Um, you know, th- things mean different uh, things on the battlefield. Uh, a charge of cavalry is very different if you give it a different context. Um, casualties taken at a certain time of the battle are very different if they're in a different context. So the quantitative analysis gives us patterns, gives us trends, gives us things that we can start to pick out. It also gives us the scale of the thing. You know, you can look at casualties or look at the number of men who've done something. But but how to interpret that, give it meaning, and then say, okay, well, well, how does that make a difference? Um, so, you know, trying to interpret how the age of soldiers or their previous experience makes a difference to the Waterloo battlefield, you need that qualitative information as well. Um, and so that, that's what I've kind of tried to do with this. But I've also, just because I like crunching numbers, and, and to disappoint you, I have used Excel spreadsheets because I'm a bit be of a... next question. Did you go flat yeah. file, which is the... the basically what a so flat file again nerd zone folks but never mind uh flat file is it's kind of in the words you know everything is laid out in a series of lines just as you get in an excel spreadsheet whereas you can't i forget what the technical term is for the more fancy things but you can kind of give each individual a number and then that number kind of corresponds to a series of different tables and so this number stays consistent across all of your different tables but then you have different um data values in, in your different tables so one might kind of do you might have a, a a table solely to do with ages and another one that's solely to do with um let's say campaign history and, and another that's solely to do with um trial data and depending on what you want to do with this information you can kind of have this really complicated web of interlocking things um uh, hey my crime and punishment database is a flat file database so you're preaching to the converted i kept mine very simple the irony was i crafted 
my flat file database, then sat down with um, a colleague who had worked with something far more complex. And at the end of it, she turned around to me and said, well, for what you want to understand, you're probably best off with a flat file anyway. So sometimes the simple options are the better ones. Yeah, absolutely. I've gone for the that, that flat file approach. There's a different file actually for each regiment, um, just because once you get past about 2,000 rows, and, and each row has um, about 19 columns. Um, so that there's 19 data points per soldier, and, and some of them are kind of duplicated. I've got basically a, a tick box one zero binary for killed, wounded, captured, or deserted. Um, so you know that that kind of four of them is really one. Um, but say there's there's then 16 data points per soldier, um, and if you get past kind of 2,000 rows on that, I found it got very clunky. It's probably my computer as well, but I basically made a different. Uh, file for each regiment. Um, but what you can do with, with Excel, and it is brilliant, you can reorder each column without losing the, the overall data. Um, you can compare things, you can make graphs, you can make tables, you can make charts. Um, you know, anyone that uses Excel, I would encourage you to just play around with it for, for an hour or two. Um, use the, the formula function. Once you've worked out that formula, um, you can work out loads of stuff. It's brilliant. You know, you can get standard deviations, means, medians, averages. Um, you can work out all of this stuff. Um, I probably didn't do it in the most time efficient way um, because, you know, I, I know Excel and nothing else, um, bit useless, but, uh, you know, it worked for me. Um, but yeah, I've got these these masses of data um, and, and each regiment, because uh, the, the regimental registers don't just list the people who fought at Waterloo, they list everyone in the regiment, third battalions, fourth battalions, depot, so each regiment has minimum 1,800 entries. The maximum, I think, I, I did got to about 2,500. Um, and then everyone after that kind of joined too late for Waterloo, so I, I actually ignored them. Um, but for each regiment, therefore, you've got somewhere between you know, 25,000 and 35,000 or, or maybe 40,000 data points um, that you can play with. Um, and you know, some of them are fairly basic, you know, which battalion, which company. Others are heights, ages, the rest of it. Um, I didn't record things like parents' names. Um, I didn't record previous occupations. I probably should have done. Um, but I thought it would be too time-consuming because um, I think in the end, I've, I've gone through 35,000 soldiers and got, got about that number of entries. Um, it took a while. So, you know, I didn't put all the data in I could have done. Um, but it's it's really good that you can compare these things on Excel. You can make um, different charts, different tables. Um I made a vast number of these things I've done nothing with because they're actually not very interesting. Um, you know, I think things that actually don't don't show us more than you could just guess, really. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there, there is some really good stuff to come out of this. How the hell have you done this so quickly? Because oh, I've just done some basic maths. Um, so my database, according to my pigeon maths, contains something in the region of 93,000 data points. You're probably looking at a minimum of, of 200,000 data points, certainly no less than 180,000. This, um, is, this is massive in terms of... 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. effort and and all the rest of it and i swear you've been working on this for like 18 months two years or something yeah it's a couple of years um i don't have much of a social life so you know staying in in the evenings um, this is called being a historian my friend yeah yeah i mean i, I socialize with people who are dead for 200 years um you know that's a perfect evening for me um but you now the, these um documents are also they're readily available um the the regimental registers the uh the french Military Archive has done a brilliant job of putting the line infantry regiments registers online, um, so so you can get all of this data. Uh, it, it's the raw images of the the files, so you have to be able to read, you know, handwritten French still. Um, nothing is transcribed particularly, um, but you know you can go that, through them relatively easily, um, and that they're kind of handed to me on a plate. I haven't had to go and dig them out or find them elsewhere, so I guess that saves a lot of the time. Um, and they, they are quite repetitive, so you know what you're looking for after a while, because they're on a, a pre-printed form. There's you know, five or six boxes uh, that are filled in. You know where you're looking for each bit of information. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't go into as much detail on, on soldiers who say were discharged in 1814. I just noted down the biographical details. Um, very rarely noted down of the stuff, unless it was really exciting. Um, you know, a man who saved the eagle at Talavera, um, who I still can't find anything about from the British side. It wasn't a rifleman that tried to take the eagle, so don't get too excited. Um, but uh, all you the know, sharp the, conspiracy theorists have just jumped straight online. There is evidence that somebody tried to take an eagle at Talavera. Yeah, it was a, a dragoon apparently. Um, although I've, I've recently been asking around, uh, and me and uh, Mark uh, Mark Thompson think it might have been a Spanish dragoon rather than a British one. Um, you know, the, the record says English dragoon, but. They may have got mistaken, um, but you know things like that I may have noted down. But most of the time I, I didn't. So of the the thirty six odd thousand men that I looked at, um, the twenty thousand who were at Waterloo, or kind of seventeen thousand at Waterloo, got the most attention. Um, but yeah, it's a, a a bit of an undertaking this one, and, and I assumed it would be a bit quicker when I started. Um, I have to say naivety. Um, you know, I thought oh, a few seconds per entry that'll be easy. Oh no. Um, but if anyone wants to, to go through them, you don't need to do 36,000 entries. You can just pick a year or, or two and do that. Um, they're definitely worth looking at. Certainly are. It's fascinating. And I I suppose we should come out of the nerd zone, shouldn't we? But a couple of, of quick ones um, on this. You mentioned things like Légion d'honneur uh, being listed. Roughly how many had a Légion d'honneur by this point that were um, in the 1815 force? Oh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Um, 
I'd, I'd, I unfortunately, uh, that was one of the things I didn't note down in a separate box. I just put it in my uh, list of notes. Um, so I'd have to go through that. Um, but it, it's not that many. Um, you know, we, we're talking a, a very small percentage of the force, but it is also men of all ranks. There are, are private soldiers with the Legion Donor. Um, you know, sergeants, obviously, um, adjutants, who's officier, sergeant major, that the ranks that, you know, you'd expect to be boasting these things, but also just some private soldiers, um, probably illiterate soldiers, um, because you couldn't normally get promoted without literacy, uh, but soldiers who've been there a while. Um, most of them who are still in the army got their, their Legion Donner in the last couple of years before the Waterloo campaign. Um, a few actually got it on the, the anniversary of Waterloo, um, you know, 18th, uh, 18th of June, 1813. There were a few that were awarded. Um, so I thought it was kind of a, you know, a cruel date. They wake up on the 18th thinking, oh, it's going to be a good day. 18th of June always works well for me. And then not so well two years later. Yeah, that, that notion wouldn't have aged well, would it? Um, in terms of, you, you mentioned you've got kind of hints towards where some of these people come from. So, for example, you found a guy who um, originates from India, but of course the, the question mark then becomes, were they born into a white European family out in India and then went back to France, or are they of Indian ancestry who, for whatever reason, ended up in France and decided to enlist? Do we have any strong indications of where some of these individuals came from in terms of ethnicity and whether or not we can kind of start to point towards i'm not asking you to pluck a finger out pick pluck a figure out of the air quite why you'd pluck a finger out of the air either i'm not entirely sure um but is there any kind of indication that actually a proportion of this force perhaps a bigger proportion than we would naturally assume would have been sort of not white european um, yeah, and the, the physical descriptions actually give us skin colour for a lot of the soldiers, um, mm. which can be an indication. In terms of the, the chap from India, if I remember rightly, I, I think his name was Jacques de Saint-Albain. So I'm assuming he is of um, the French parentage who, who moved back to, to France. I think that he's born in 1781. So, yeah. Um, whereas the, the chap from modern-day Uzbekistan, um, his name's Casimir Blot, um, it's, it's a bit more um, difficult to pin down exactly where he might be from by purely the name. Um, I don't think the physical description there says much. Um, there are half a dozen men from the Caribbean who are noted as either being black or uh, they use the word colored. Um, but interestingly, that word also, um, kind of, Tint colore, uh, so a kind of colored tint, I suppose you might describe it as, um, is used to describe people who I think are just from the south of France, um, kind of you know, with a, a heavy tan. Um, so it's not always clear exactly what they're talking about, but certainly black soldiers from the Caribbean, there are some, um, probably half a dozen, at least four Egyptians, possibly five, but one of them is registered as being in a third battalion. Um, and most of the third battalion men transferred to the first or second. His record doesn't say whether he did, so I, I can't say he was definitely there, but at least four Egyptians um, who joined the army when the French army was in Egypt. Uh, only one of them actually joined the Mamluks, the other three straight to um, a light infantry regiment, the 4th Light. Um, and they are definitely of Egyptian descent. Um, and their names get, get somewhat butchered in the, 
the registers as well. Um, but it, it, it's clear that they are obviously of, of Egyptian descent. So um, we can tell from the records a bit. Um, most men with a what you count as a, a traditional French name, perhaps, though, um, you, you couldn't tell ethnicity unless it's explicitly noted. In some cases, it is. Many cases, it's not. Um, but, you know, it, I'd say you've got at least a, a dozen men of color who fight at Waterloo uh, in the in First Corps alone. Um, possibly, well, almost certainly more in the other corps and other units. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the um, the usual spats that emerge when people sort of try and point out that actually people of varying ethnicities have moved across borders and therefore were likely to be in armed forces of the uh, Western European nations over the years. But um, there you go, folks. Something to ponder on there. We've talked a fair bit about the scope of these sources to tell us a lot let me just be a pessimist for a second and say what are the limitations of the data that you can pull out of these um well there's there's limitations in accuracy for a start Mm -hmm. uh some records are not kept particularly well um a regiment like the 28th they're really well kept they they keep everything updated the 19th uh don't bother giving previous service histories much they just say served in all campaigns um, or you know, served from 1806 to 14. Um, obviously, the clerk or the the adjutant who was filling it in just couldn't be bothered. Um, so we we do have data missing. Um, in some of the records, they don't fill in bits and pieces. No, maybe don't don't fill in the conscription year or don't fill in the the employment record or whatever it might be. Um, at other times, if you trace a record back through several regiments, you find. Um, several mistakes and and inconsistencies Uh, so there was one chap who was registered at uh, i think about 197 centimeters and i was quite interested now this is a giant for the time Um, and then i found his original inscription record in another regiment where he was registered at about 153 centimeters Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. now that that i mean he he first registered when he was 13 so you know that could be natural growth but growing a foot and a half even from 13 to 18 with extra food is unusual um so, you know, it's not quite clear how accurate some of these things are. Um, names also change a bit, uh, you know, sometimes horrendously change. Um, so if you didn't know it was the same man, it would be almost unrecognizable. Um, so there are, there are limitations there. Um, we've also got to bear in mind that these are, are records kept by humans. They, they fill in what they want to. Um, so to give a, a couple of examples, um, the 19th line, I think it is, um, has, if I remember rightly, 263 men listed as, as killed or wounded or, or captured. Oh, sorry, no, killed or wounded at Waterloo. Um, of those 263 men listed as killed or wounded, one has a description of how it happened. Only one. Now, is that because 262 they didn't know? Is it because, again, the 19th is the one where they couldn't be bothered filling in much? So is it they just couldn't be bothered filling it in? Was it this one was so horrific? That's the only one they remembered. We don't know why this one was filled in. Um, and, you know, he was shot in the lower abdomen, so it could have been horrific. Um, but because we don't know why, you know, it reminds us that these are filled in by the choice of someone. So someone has chosen what to put in there, what not. Um, and so, you know, there is a, a process that we have to go through with any source of considering the provenance, uh, of considering who created this and why. So there's some of the limitations. Um, 
Other ones, of course, are that if you're basing this uh, or, or doing a, a qualitative survey, a, sorry, a quantitative survey of, of something like heights of ages, um, you do need them to have got it right. Um, heights especially, uh, I suspect they, they sometimes just guess. Uh, some of them are really accurate down to the, you know, 0.1 of a centimeter. Others, they're just, no, 165. Um, that, that, that comes up a lot. 166.6 comes up ridiculously often. Um, and I don't know whether that is because a lot of men happen to hit that height or whether they just look at them and go, yeah, one and two thirds, that'll do. Um, so, you know, it's not entirely clear why uh, certain patterns emerge. Um, but, but you know, the, the accuracy of information, the lack of impartiality, possibly these are, are limitations with these as much as any source. There's a very small corner of my brain that just kind of heard the 166.6 and wondered if there was some kind of in-joke going on there, whereby, you know, 666, number of the beast, I know technically it was originally meant to be 606, so I don't know at what point it then got morphed into 666, but it just occurred to me, maybe that's a thing going in there. What you suggest is far more practical and, and sensible. Um, I mean, it may well be they looked at some people or they had some departments in mind and thought, right, he's the devil. Uh, you know, he's from this department I don't like. Stick it down as 1666. Um, it could just be that that jumps out as a pattern in my mind. Uh, you know, if when you look at things, uh, 165.3 is not an interesting number. 1666, that that sticks in your mind. So it may just be that I'm, uh, I'm remembering them more frequently. Um, but ag again, the, the problem is we don't know why people fill these things in. Um, and so to treat this data set as kind of pure empirical data would be problematic. I think you have to remember with this data set as much as anything, it's curated by a human. Um, so anyone using it, you know, I, I would advise using it with the normal skills of a historian, be critical. You've done a really nice job there of giving us the indications of the challenges of data. You know, that the, the danger very often, if you crunch some numbers is to go, this is empirical and this is 100% fact. Um, and this was why I was so keen to have you on to talk about this. I know it's taken me a long time to actually get around to it, but I think, and this is something that I feel very acutely with the crime and punishment research. A lot of people kind of hear the numbers and they think that the numbers tell you every element of the story. And actually it, it's not the case in the slightest. Um, I'm also conscious that we've been going for about three quarters of an hour. and We haven't got to sort of nitty gritty of, of these men and the, what their, their stuff uh, tell us. So I'm I'm hoping we do this in two, but this could actually end up being three episodes uh, coming out of this. But we shall see where we get to because I don't want to rush this. Um, I do think we want to start drilling into some of these men, though. In terms, and this, I'm hoping this is kind of a quick one, in terms of these men's social standing, we there are a lot of generalizations that get thrown around, probably going back to Wellington, quite frankly, about how the British rank and file weren't, didn't consist of gentlemen. Okay, yes, people will be shouting at me going, oh, gentlemen volunteers, but they were the exception rather than the norm. Um, whereas Napoleon compared the French force more favorably because it was a conscript force. And so therefore, in his view, came from a higher social strata because it encapsulated a much bigger proportion of, of society because it was a snapshot that got conscripted. Now, there are problems with that in what you've suggested already. You've got volunteers, you've got people who can um, be substitutes for conscripts, as well as those who just get conscripted. So what 
kind of fell out of your research when it come came to sort of which proportions of society these guys were coming from yeah um these records actually give us a, a bit of a clue about this um i think wellington complained to stanhope it, it, in stanhope stanhope's conversations about this where he was saying uh, you know that the french army is made up of all social ranks therefore is better and in some ways he, he's right um because we we have the previous professions of men in these records now it this is one of the areas that is the least best kept in the records. Um, but we we can see the professions. And for the most part, the most common things we see are journeymen, laborers, uh, viticulturalists, weavers. Uh, so kind of traditional, I suppose, um, well, traditional professions um, for men in a, an agrarian society. Um, but also some are recorded as writers, um, by, by which I think they mean clerks. Um, as merchants, as medical students, law students, legal professionals, coroners, even. Um, so we we are seeing the the kind of not quite the gentry strand, but the solid um, upper part of the lower orders, I suppose, and the tradesman class in Britain, perhaps, um, who are traditionally the ones who who wouldn't join the army as much. Um, their sons might, but if they did, it was for an adventure, and their parents might try to buy them out. Um, so we, we are seeing that kind of strata of society coming through in the records. We're not necessarily seeing the sons of the, the richest coming through because, as you say, they can buy substitutes. Um, Napoleon brings this back in uh, very early in his, his leadership of France um, on the basis that money is always going to buy people out of it. It's just he doesn't want them to do it corruptly, so he'll allow them to do it legally. Um, and that you could buy a substitute. Uh, so we are seeing that. But we're seeing, you know, professionals coming into the army, as well as, um, you know, the the average labourer. I guess the other question um, is, and this is perhaps a little bit of a jump, because what you're inherently looking at here is the people who do decide to go back to the army in 1815. But there has been a lot of debate around this about to what extent is there an appeal to go back to the army in 1815. You know, so Napoleon comes back, Charles Esdale has made the argument that it is fundamentally a military coup. It's kind of pushed forwards by the enthusiasm of the armed forces and connected to that is the commonly touted line about how veterans flock back to the Eagles. And you can see the logic in that. You know, you've got the unemployment that comes from a drawdown post-war. The British are hugely concerned about this and, and end up having to deal with that headache. Read Evan Wilson's horrible piece or go back and listen to the interview I did with him. This is a, a problem that faces all societies. So when it comes to 1815 and Napoleon comes back and goes, well, we're at war. I need an army. Come back, folks. Do you think there is genuine enthusiasm for a, a return to what the army represents? Or is the the fact is the issue here? Hey, here's an option for employment. I guess kind of what I'm hoping is that perhaps the proportions of substitution, um, and the proportions of volunteers versus the proportion of conscripts gives us an indication of where that balance may or may not lie. So the the 1815 records are a bit difficult on that because. There's no conscription in 1815. Napoleon doesn't bring it in. What he does is just recall all old soldiers. So if you were discharged for any reason, you had to return to your depot 
report for duty. If you're unfit, you'd be sent home. If you were fit, you'd be brought back into the army. And the response to that is actually quite weak. Um, we do see a, a, a trickle of men, a steady trickle of men coming in up till May. Um, so, you know, men are responding, but nowhere near the 100,000 that Napoleon had hoped for. We're seeing volunteers coming in, um, not as many as the, the returning old soldiers, but some. Uh, certainly more than you'd expect if if there's no popular um, enthusiasm for Napoleon. And most of the volunteers are aged 18 to 20. Uh, so these are young men who haven't yet been conscripted so that they're not liable for service. They could easily escape it. Um, and they're coming into the army. Um, and I, I think there's a degree of enthusiasm there. So we see in the 8th Hussars, for example, Colonel Marbo's regiment, the, you know, the, the glorious um, shiny uniformed Hussars, uh, they get more men than they know what to deal with uh, or, or what to do with. Um, and so they end up actually sending men to infantry regiments because they can't horse them all, they can't use them. Um, so I think men are volunteering from a sense of, of enthusiasm, perhaps adventure, uh, maybe loyalty to Napoleon. There are some doing that. Um, Others maybe are returning for for economic reasons. Um, France is a bit different to Britain. In, in 1810, Britain had kind of gone past the threshold of the agricultural economy no longer being the largest in the country. It's mining, building, and industry and manufacturing. That, as, as a single sector, is the biggest employer in Britain. France, on the other hand, is still 80% agrarian. Um, so most of these men who are kicked out of the army in, in 1814 go back home and they don't find full employment, but they still find some employment. Um, and often there is family small holdings. There's enough to sustain people um, and, and more than in Britain. You now, enclosure hasn't hit France as hard. There's, there's a different social organization, really. Um, even in, in kind of 1810 to 12, at the, the height of the, I suppose, the hunger in the empire with the food riots and the rest, there had been a shortage of labor in the countryside still in France. Uh, and men avoiding conscription especially could always find somewhere to, to hide out if they gave free labor to the farmer. Um, and so there was less destitution in France than, than Britain with demobilized soldiers. So I think the, the economic motivation is probably a bit less strong. Um, whether people are really enthusiastic or not it is always hard to tell from the records. Um, but we have some really interesting cases. There's a chap called uh, Mathieu Brock, um, who is a, a soldier who had served from 1792. So a, a veteran, he'd been discharged in 1802. He then served in the Company of Reserve for five years, 1805 to 10. Uh, Company of Reserve is just in the department. They do kind of internal policing. Um, they're at the um, the disposal of the prefect. Uh, he was discharged again in 1810 from that, and he volunteers for service again in 1815. Now, you might look at that and think, okay, this is a patriot, a Frenchman, a man who wants to fight. Or is it a, mal who, a man who is maladjusted to society, who's unemployable, who can't get another job? We we just can't tell from this record. Um, you know, my initial thought was, oh, you no, know, what what a loyal chap! He's going back to fight for his emperor. Um, you know, maybe that says something more about me than about him. Um, but we can project onto this. But but fundamentally, we don't know from that record. Um, but there but is overall, also a, a, a an issue here, right? In that we don't know these individuals and their characters, and that in turn, so there there is a. I'm a fan of the Jack Reacher series of books yes folks you can judge me to your heart's content but uh, i think lee child is certainly the earlier ones are uh, absolutely brilliant and one of the things that he does because the protagonist is a, a military police officer is he talks about kind of the psychology of people who join the armies and he talks about you know some join because of economic hardship some join because they are patriots and some join because they are 
to a greater or lesser degree, slightly psychotic, and they enjoy the fact that the army gives you a legalised form of killing. Now, I we don't know this guy to start casting aspersions about his character, but this is kind of what you're alluding to, right? That, that there is that possibility that actually some people are, are looking at the army as a way to scratch that psychotic itch. Um, and that's a very sort of macabre thing to point out. But we have to remember that we're dealing with humans here and you're going to get the full spectrum of humanity within a, a force that is drawn from society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, Joanna Bork uh, wrote a, a really interesting book, uh, An Intimate History of Killing. Um, not one I recommend reading on a bus, by the way. No one comes near you if you do that. Um, oh, mate, the, the so sexual assault has quite obviously been in the news recently. Um, an integral part of my research has been sexual violence within armed forces, as you can imagine, and what the army does and doesn't do with it. Um, and there is a book by a French scholar called Georges Vigorello that is entitled A History of Rape. Um, and as you can imagine, it's essential reading for that kind of research. Read it on a train, especially given the cover, which is kind of one of these ancient scenes of an abduction and sort of, as you think of a kind of Raphael style thing with clothing being all over the place. Um, the looks that you get, <laughs> don't read that in a public place, people. Um, in my naivety and lack of thought, I I did read it on a train and decided I wasn't going to repeat that again. So, uh, sorry, I've interrupted you, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. There are, there yeah, are times but, when you need to be careful. Yeah, the, I mean, there's an important wider point there about triggering people as well by reading things in public. I think it's something we all need to to be aware of. Um, but, but Joanna Bork's book, um, An Intimate History of Killing, is about the 20th century. And she quite controversially, I think, suggested that a lot of people engaged in war in the 20th century enjoyed it. They enjoyed the killing. Um, killing were was you know gave a sense of pleasure that nothing else could and you know she goes into it in great depth in the book um like i say it's, it's provocative other people have disagreed with it but i found it very interesting as a, a kind of psychological study and while it's it's dangerous to project too much between different periods of history um fundamentals such as the the emotional response to death um aren't going to change vastly i think between 1800 and the 1900 uh, in terms of you know, your the, the power that you have when you kill someone um, and so some men in the napoleonic armies undoubtedly just liked violence they liked committing violence they liked having freedom to do that in the french army especially where once you are in that uniform and you go across the border you're given license to basically do whatever you want to the local population um and in 1815 by the way the army did what they wanted to northern france um the two months where they're building the army, April, May, and early June of, of 1815, they treat Northern France like an occupied territory. Uh, they're pillaging, they're plundering, they're molesting, they're attacking the locals. There are examples of them getting on well with the locals, uh, but there are hundreds of examples of the departmental authorities complaining and saying, can you stop your men from pillaging our people? And the army says, well, that's kind of what they do. Uh, you know, that, that we, we've trained them to do this. We, we've allowed them to, sorry. Um, so no, some of these men will join up for that kind of um, license to commit violence, uh, and we don't know these men. Um, you know, you look through them on the registers; all you get is a, a brief snapshot in in a bit of ink. Um, we we can't know their psychology, but you know, we can always try to to extrapolate hints. Absolutely, a lot of what you said there also taps into Michael Hughes's book, doesn't it? Um, Forging Napoleon's Grand Armée, and that uh, folks will have heard me talk before about that kind of 
the culture of, of sexualized violence that seems to have existed um and the conflations of conquest of territory with conquest of people whether that's um through uh, murder killing people on the battlefield whether it's uh, atrocities against civilians or whether it is sexual assault um so you know the, lots of lots of discussions that we we have periodically on this show all kind of feeding into this episode which already has hit the one hour mark so folks what we're going to do um so for context we are at the end of question three of the pre-prepared list <laughs> um so what we're going to do is we are going to hit the pause button and um graham and i will continue this discussion for you in due course but i'm not going to cut short such a fascinating wide-ranging uh, but also deep uh, study of um, a, a force that we haven't understood as well as we now have the opportunity to. And why would I restrict your opportunities to delve into that? Because let's be honest, when this book hits the shelves, you're going to want to go and buy that book. It's just sadly not out yet. A reminder for you, if you want to catch up on Graham's previous research, he is an award-winning uh, contributor to the British Journal of Military History, winner of the Sir Michael Howard Prize. The BJMH is a free-to-access online journal. It's what we call open access. Just search bjmh.org, and I think you'll um, find it. So go and search for Graham's work there. If you're in the mood for a bit of early Christmas shopping, why not? Hey, we're apparently less than 100 days out. He shudders as he says that. Um, the two books that you want from Graham are War, Public Opinion and Policy in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 1785 to 1815. I believe there is currently 40% off at Palgrave Macmillan as we record this. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure I had that email the other day. So you might want to avail yourself. And also, Graham is co-author of Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Hellmand from Pen and Sword. Graham a fascinating discussion. We'll continue this in due course, but for now, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Much love to all of you, my loyal Patreon supporters, but folks, remember what I said at the start of this show. The exclusive content comes to an end this month, and I'll be suspending the Martial, Emperor, and Legion de Scholar tiers, so please check the previous exclusive episode, which went into detail on what you need to do. If you are due to be charged between now and the 25th of September for the Marshal, Emperor and Legion de Scholar tiers, you need to change your tiers so that you aren't charged for perks that simply won't exist come the 25th of September. If you only subscribe for the exclusive content, you need to suspend your subscription on Patreon and or Spotify. Shout outs to my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American. Martin Pisani, Sam German, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Stephen Gillen, 
Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Timothy Day, Sam Moore, Stephen Flanagan, Wyatt Pollock, Ulrich Ducado, David Graylick, Armin Darbin, Rob Coughlin, Noah Fink, Carol Dixon-Smith, and Paul Gesheck. The Admirals, David Priest, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, Stephen Ashworth, Kate Wilcom, Steve Carter, and Clemens. The Marshals, Roy Muir, Ger Brown, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, Keyes Bishop, and Charles McKay. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, JC Kaiser, and Bob Burnham, all of whom, of course, are about to be forced to abdicate. And last, but by no means least, the Legion de Scholars. Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. And I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.